in the book of Mark, and we welcome you to to High Point Church of Brandon, Sunday morning, January the 20th, 2008. Hard to believe. As we said, we're continuing in our study of the book of Mark. The primary focus of the gospel of Mark is simply Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John the Baptist is talked about quite a bit in this, and and we refer to him as John the Baptist. He's also referred to by some people as John the Baptizer. Uh, Whichever one you prefer is perfectly fine. But he was divinely appointed by God to proclaim and prepare the way for the coming Messiah, who was Jesus Christ. He did this through through preaching uh, around the, the area that he was from. He baptized people from Jerusalem and the, the surrounding area of Judea in the Jordan River primarily because it was a, a very major uh, river that went through that, that particular part of the country. And he his message was calling people to repentance and to baptism. But it wasn't just calling them to repentance and baptism. He was also pointing them toward Jesus who was to come and that he was going to be the Messiah. Let's start our, our reading today, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Basically, this part of the scripture is that Jesus had decided to travel from his hometown of Nazareth to the location where John happened to be ministering at that time. He did this in order to be baptized. Now, that might sound a little strange. Why would Jesus go to be baptized? It wasn't because he needed baptism, but it was really for some other reasons. Through going to John and being baptized in the Jordan River like he was doing with everyone else, He identified with sinners. He showed people of that day that he, Jesus, was a man. And we have to realize that he was a man. He was as human a person as you and I. He was God manifest in the flesh, but he was completely a man too. If we don't recognize the fact and and say, yes, I understand that he was a man, then it takes away from what he did. If he did it through his God powers, and everything was only because of his God powers, then it wasn't really anything that Jesus had anything to do with. So through the baptism, he identified with the sinners that John was preaching to. He also, through this, provided an example for the necessity and the importance of baptism. Jesus' goal was to represent sinners. His whole plan and God's ultimate plan was that Jesus would come to earth in the form of a man and that where man was destined to die for his sin, that Jesus would take all of the sin of all mankind upon himself and he would die in their place. And he didn't represent sinners by going out and sinning But the Bible says that he was tempted as we are and yet remained without sin. His baptism also represented that everyone needed to repent. Because remember, John was preaching, repent, and then he was baptizing them. So Jesus was given the ultimate example. Was it because he had sinned? He was doing it simply as an example that that's what we need to do also. 
Jesus' baptism foreshadowed his, his death and his burial and his resurrection. In fact, let's read Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So the baptism of Jesus, as it does with us, it represents a death, a burial, and a resurrection. This new life that's spoken of in Romans. At the baptism, Jesus' authority was affirmed in two ways. One was, it was affirmed that he was truly the Messiah. Messiah meant anointed one. And at this baptism, there was no doubt to anybody that was around that he truly was the anointed one. <clears throat> because we see that as, as he came up out of the water, it says that the Spirit ascended on him in the form of a dove. Now I'm guessing that as John baptized all these people along the Jordan River, they had never seen that happen. So there was something special about this person that John was baptizing. Secondly, when he came up out of the water, there was a voice, an audible voice. I don't think it was that it was something they thought or it was something that was an impression on their heart. I believe it was a literal voice that spoke from heaven and it said, You are my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. And again, this was another affirma affirmation of the Messiahship of Jesus, that he truly was the Son of God. And again, I'm also guessing that there was no one else that John had baptized that when they came up out of the water, there was a voice spoke from heaven that said, You are my Son, and I love you, and I'm well pleased in you. So this whole scene that's taking place is to affirm to those around who Jesus really is. He hasn't really started his ministry yet. So it was important for him to be validated as to who he was. For those that saw this, it was a, a divine confirmation. It was also a type of, of an endorsement. Here is God himself, this voice speaking from heaven that is basically saying, this is the one you've been waiting for. This is my son. And it says that immediately after that, that Jesus was compelled, the King James Version, or the NIV says compelled, King James Version said he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. While he was in the wilderness... He was there for 40 days, and he endured 40 days of temptation. Why was this necessary? Again, it goes back to the same reason as the going to John at the Jordan River and being baptized. By him going into the wilderness for 40 days and being tempted, it helped him to better identify with sinners. It helped him to better identify with what temptation was. Again, as we've talked about so many times before, when Jesus was hungry, when he didn't eat, he got hungry. Just like you and I. And, and again, let's not take away the humanity of Jesus Christ. Because when we start taking away the humanity of him, again, what it does, it makes him something that's not like us. And if, he, if we say he's not like us, then the sacrifice was really meaningless. So this allowed him to identify with sin and temptation of sin and what it was like for those things to be placed in front of him. The devil presented him with chance opportunities of power. He presented him with opportunities of, I know you're hungry, so why don't you eat something? Jesus had the ability to do whatever the devil said. He chose not to. 
And through that, it provided us with an example of triumph over sin. We see that he accomplished this 40 days in the wilderness through a few different ways. Obviously, he was there fasting. He was praying. And another thing that was very important, if you read through the Scripture describing his time in the wilderness, is he used the Scripture. He quoted Scripture to the devil. Now, I will say this about that. If you don't know any Scripture, it's hard to quote it to the devil. And that's why I feel like it is so important for us to study the Word of God. It's so important for us to not just read it, but to make it a part of us. To learn those Scriptures that are meaningful to us. To learn those Scriptures that are meaningful to where when we come up against a a trial or a temptation, that we can recall that Scripture and use it as a power. And verse verse 13 says that he was with the wild animals. Anybody ever, that ever caught your attention before? That while he was in the wilderness, he was with the wild animals? Now there's a few different interpretations of what this means. First of all, Matthew, Luke, and Mark all talk about Jesus in the wilderness. Mark is the only one that refers to wild animals. Now this could be for a number of reasons. It's possible that Mark wanted to emphasize the danger that Jesus faced being out in the wilderness. In in that day, there were far more wild animals out in the wilderness than there are, obviously, today in that area. In fact, in that area, there were wild lions. If you go all the way back to Jeremiah, chapter 49 and verse 19... It says, like a lion coming up from Jordan's thicket to a rich pasture land, land, I will chase Edom from its land in an instant. So this is all the way back in the Old Testament. It shows that there were lions in this area where he was. So maybe that's what Mark was talking about, that there was wild animals. And there were, if you go all the way back in the Old Testament, you see that, remember, David killed a bear. He killed a lion. There was in in, um, Samson's day. He killed a lion. There were wild animals in that day. So it could be literal that that's what it meant. It also could be that mentioning wild animals is, it adds to the picture of Jesus confronting evil. In that day, animals were often associated with evil. Wild animals were associated with evil. It could symbolize this, this, cosmic struggle that Jesus was going through between good and evil while he was in the wilderness. A third explanation could be this, that if Mark was writing to the Gentiles at Rome, the Christian Gentiles at Rome, especially those in that area of Rome that were under the governing power of Nero, those people would be facing persecution in the future. And one of the ways that Nero persecuted the Christians was he would throw them to wild animals, lions, whatever he happened to have. And if that was the case, it would give these Christians comfort to know that Jesus had confronted wild animals too. So you have three different versions of of how you can interpret that, or you can interpret it some other way. It's just fine. But it does say that he was in the wilderness with the wild animals. While he was in the wilderness, he was the target of Satan's personal attacks. It doesn't say that Satan sent one of his, his little helpers down there. This was a personal affront from Satan himself. And his goal was to to pull Jesus away from the mission that he had been sent to accomplish. The whole thing was to get Jesus to say, you know what, I don't have to do this. This fasting for 40 days and praying and and this having to give my life and and being under subjection to to the will of, of God, I don't need that. 
And that was Satan's whole thing. If you read what he did, here, why don't we go up to the top of the temple and, and, and everything you see I will give you. And again, if you take away the humanity of Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean much. But when you recognize that he was as much man as you and I, and Satan's offering to give him everything he sees, all of a sudden it changes things a little bit. But despite all his personal effort, he failed at enticing Jesus to sin. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Makes sense. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. In Mark chapter 6, we see that John the Baptist had confronted the Herod of the day, mainly about Herod's blatant sin, and surprisingly enough, that didn't go over real well with Herod. So he had John imprisoned. This is the John that baptized Jesus. So now John's in, in prison, and he was the one that was going out and preaching and teaching and baptizing people, saying, repent and be baptized and believe that this Messiah is coming, and now he's gone. So who does that leave? Jesus. Jesus' time had now come. It was time for Jesus to begin his ministry. This new era had happened and this era, at its completion, the kingdom of God would have come to its fullness. See, if Jesus had decided somewhere in there that, you know what, I just don't think I'm going to do that, then we would have not had salvation. You say, well, he had to. No, he didn't have to. If he had to, he would not have, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed and said, let this cup pass from me, not my will, but yours be done. He had a choice. And again, please don't ever take away from the humanity of Jesus Christ because when you do, it takes away from the effectiveness of what he did. And Jesus, as he preached, much like John, he urged people to turn from their sins and believe in the gospel that he was proclaiming. Unlike John... He took repentance, took people from beyond repentance to faith in himself. And here's the thing. John was saying, repent and I'll baptize you and believe in this one that's coming. Jesus was saying, repent and be baptized and I'm here. And we see this in the fact that when he saw Simon and Andrew... He called to them to do what? Follow me. I'm not saying follow the one that's coming behind me. I'm not saying follow the one that is to come and he will be the Messiah. Follow me because I am him. And because Simon and Andrew were commercial fishermen, Jesus called them to be fishers of men. Now, why would he do that? Because it's something they understood. Fishing in that day was a very important part of the economy. And a lot of the fishing in the Sea of Galilee was done with a, a net. And it was usually about eight feet this way. And it could be hundreds of feet long. And they had corks on top that would cause the net to float and there would be weights on the bottom that would cause it to hang down like a fence. And they would take this net and put it out the back of a boat, 
and they would surround this big giant area and as the net went out it's hanging in the water like a fence and then little by little they would pull this net in and the net would get tighter and tighter and tighter and the fish would swim towards the middle and when the fish decided that they were getting too crowded they would swim out to the net and they would get caught in the net today we call that a gill net because the fish's head goes through there and it catches on their gills they can't go forward they can't go backward so that was a very common thing and jesus said come with me and i will make you fishers of men back to that i believe that it was important that he spoke to them in terms they understood he didn't talk to them about planting corn why they weren't farmers now he did in different times speak to people about planting and sowing and reaping but it was because those people were probably farmers and understood that i think it is very important that as we witness to people that we speak to them in terms that they understand I don't think it's a good witnessing tool to go out and try to witness to somebody and you start off with how the book of Daniel and Revelation match up in prophecy and eschatology. And you pull out this big chart and you have this big statue and you have the bronze feet and people are going to go, what are you, crazy? What does that have to do with anything? Jesus spoke to them in terms they understood. They're fishermen, so I'll tell you what. Leave your nets and we'll quit catching fish and I will make you fishers of men. I believe when we witness to people, we need to witness to people in the normal English language. Not in that elusive language called Christianese. And Christianese is that language that you only know after you've been in church for about 20 years. It's all those terminologies that we use at church that if you use them around a lot of people, they'll go, huh? Normal words. Well, I don't really know what to say. Here's one thing that always works. Here's what God has done for me. God has transformed my life very simple message of you know when we're born we're all born sinners and if we die that way that's the way we stay but we don't have to die that way because god himself came to earth in the form of a man and he gave his life to take away your sins and mine and that's available to you it's free it's already paid for. All you have to do is accept the blood of Jesus Christ on your life and your sins are gone. Doesn't that sound a whole lot more enticing than talking about the seventh angel and the seals? And Sure it does. Jesus provided an example right here for us of how to call people to follow him. Tell them what God has done for you. Show them in the Word that God loves them. There's a lot of people out there that don't know that anybody loves them. Much less God. You go, well, I don't know where that is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. If most people could only quote one scripture, it's probably that one. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You go, well, how do you know that? Because I read it. And it comes back to this here. When we witness, if we don't know the Word, we can't use it. Because it's amazing that oftentimes, those opportunities we have to witness, we just don't have this big giant Bible in our pocket. That's why it's important to have it, like David said, in our heart. 
And I think it's important that we we pray for this person, that God will touch their heart. And I think it's important also that we pray with this person if they're open to it. You mean out in public? Yeah. Because you don't do a lot of witnessing at church. So that kind of leaves out in public. You go, I've never done that before. Probably time to start. That's right. The response that Jesus got... Obviously, he said the right thing because it says that Simon and Andrew left their nets and they joined him. He worked. And they go on down to shore and there's two other brothers that are also commercial fishermen. Their names are James and John and they're the sons of a man named Zebedee. And they too willingly left their nets and followed Jesus. You see... I believe Jesus made following him attractive. If we don't make living for God attractive, people won't want to be like us. And they won't want to have what we have if we don't look like we have anything. And I'm not talking about stuff. I'm talking about in our attitude, in the life we live. Why would somebody want to change from the way they are to the, cha- to the way that you are if you don't portray the love of God? It's obvious from the two examples of, of these two different groups of men who were busy doing what they do that Jesus required unwavering commitment from his disciples you realize they did not say you know what jesus we got this one last trip here we've just got the boat ready it's full of gas it's already running out here and when we get back if you're still here we'll um yeah we'll get back to you no it says that they left their nets and they immediately followed him and there are so many people today that have all intentions in the world of following after Jesus, but only after they go on that last fishing trip, if you're still around when I get back, then I'll think about following you. But I believe this is another example to us today that when Jesus calls us to follow Him, He wants us to follow Him completely. Jesus could have said, you know what, I'll just set up my ministry right here around where your boats are and uh, maybe build a, well, maybe just build a church over there and that way you can still be fishermen and maybe we'll tie the church in with like this fisherman theme. That's not what he said. He said, follow me. And they left their nets, they left their boats, and they followed Jesus for over three years. I believe it says a lot about these men, too. They weren't doing it half-heartedly. And they weren't occasional followers of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority not as the teachers of the law. And just then a a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Everything that we've read so far this morning leads us to these scriptures right here. On the Sabbath, Jesus goes to the synagogue. It was customary in that day for the leaders of the synagogue to have different people come and teach. If they were in the area and they were known as teachers, that they could come and teach at the synagogue. And because of this custom, the leaders of the congregation invited Jesus to come teach. 
And verse 22 says that the congregation was astounded or amazed that Jesus taught with real authority. You go, what does that mean? The common practice of that day was for teachers to validate their teaching by naming other famous scholars who agreed with their position. In other words, I would I would stand up here this morning and I would say, based on what Bishop Goldsberry says, then this is how it is. And Pastor Magine also backs that up, so this is how it is. Jesus didn't do that. He spoke to them as if what he said mattered because he said it. I'm not validating this by anybody else. I am the authority. Exactly. He was the authority. That's why he spoke as one. He also certified his truthfulness of his statements by the miracles that he performed. As he, as he was speaking here, there was a man that was possessed of an evil spirit. He began to cry out. It's, it's kind of interesting what he said. Here's what he said. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And here's the interesting part. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Now, in calling Jesus' name, what he was trying to do was to gain control of him. That was a, uh, in that day, it was a, a belief that if you know a person's name, it gave you power over them. And so this evil spirit calls out Jesus' name to try to gain power over him. Je- Jesus just looked at him and said, Come out of him. I don't believe he screamed and jumped up and down and got all red in the face. I believe he just looked at him and said, come out of him. And it says that that's what happened. The spirit left the man. The attempt of this demon to overtake Jesus and to gain control over him was completely unsuccessful. So what did this show? Authority. Here he is preaching with authority and teaching with authority, and all of a sudden he shows that he has authority. And the evil spirit was forced to leave the man. And it amazed the onlookers. They were amazed that this man can do that. And let me say this here. There is power and authority in the name of Jesus. But please do not ever think that it's an incantation that magically dispels demons and summons great power. It's not a magical word. Well, what is it? For us as believers, the name of Jesus represents who He is, His person, His character, His love, His power, and His perfection. It's not a magical incantation. It's not an abracadabra word. To speak his name or to speak in his name is to call upon or speak in reliance of Jesus Christ himself. When we say in the name of Jesus Christ, we are taking all the power and the authority of of God himself and speaking in that name. It's not us saying a magic word. It is only the power of God. And it's only when our faith totally rests on Him that we can access that authority authority of Jesus' name. If you don't have total trust in Him, calling on the name of Jesus to, to do something isn't going to work. Remember there was Simon the sorcerer who saw the apostles healing people and, and he said... Can I buy that? No. It's not for sale. It's not something that you can buy. It's not something that you can earn. So what was Jesus' authority? Matthew 28 and 18. 
Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That says a lot. For this person to come along and say, All of the authority in heaven and on earth I have. What were some of the things he had authority over? He had authority in his teaching. In Matthew chapter 7, after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, here's what he said. Or here's what it says in Matthew 7. It says, The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes just got up and read, and they rolled it back up and they said, Now here's what so-and-so says about that. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus so many times said, I say unto you. And then he said what he had to say. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly said, You have heard it said, but I say to you this. In other words, regardless of what anybody else has told you, this is the truth. And this showed that his word superseded all earthly authority. So he had authority in his teaching. He had authority to forgive sin. Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 9 and 6, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. There was more than one place where Jesus said your sins are forgiven. Go. The woman that was caught in adultery, he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So Jesus had that power to forgive sin. So he had authority in his teaching. He had the power to authority to forgive sin. He had authority through miracles. We see that in the 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 ministry of Jesus, he performed all type of miracles, uh, healing people that were sick. But his miracles really caused people to be in awe of God. It wasn't all about, look at me, what I can do. Jesus made it clear that there was one that sent him. And that's what it was all about. And not only did Jesus have the authority to perform miracles, he had the authority to give that power to others. Matthew 10 and 1. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So it wasn't just like he had it. He also had the authority to give it to someone else. He had authority over nature. In Mark chapter 4 and 39, they were out in a boat and a storm came up. And he calmed a raging sea simply by saying, Peace be still. He had authority over nature. His disciples were fearful. And after this happened, they looked at each other and they said, Who can this be that the wind and the waves obey him? He had control over the fish in the sea. There was a time when the, uh, the disciples had fished all night and, and they hadn't caught anything. And Jesus said, go out a little ways and throw your nets out on that side. And they caught so many fish that it almost sunk the boat. Uncle Dean, have you ever done that? Me either. There was a time when they needed money to pay the taxes. And they went out and they caught a fish and they opened his mouth and there was a gold coin in the fish's mouth. I've never done that either. But he had authority over the seas and the the wind and the fish that were in the sea. And then there was another time that Jesus walked by a fig tree and it didn't have any fruit on it. And he cursed this fig tree and they went on. And when they came back a few days later, it says that that fig tree had withered and died. He had authority over vegetation. He had authority over death. He stood at the tomb of Lazarus and he said, Lazarus, come forth. 
And you know what? He came hopping out of there. And he was dead. He displayed authority over his own death. In John 10 and 18, he said, I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power or authority to take it up again. I have the power to allow myself to die, but I also have the power over death that I can raise up from the dead. The grave could not hold him because in three days, just like he said, he came out of the grave. He had authority over Satan. And this was a very important part of his ministry because he freed people from the bondage that Satan held over them. He cast out demons in several places. There were instances where he would not allow demons to speak. He had such authority over them that he could tell them not to speak. He also had authority that he allowed a group of demons to go into a herd of swine. They asked for permission, and he gave it to them. But he had enough power that they had to ask, can we just go in that group of swine over there? In all of these cases, Jesus was in control. And he still is. Anybody ever heard this before? If you've got kids or grandkids, you've heard it before. You're not the boss of me. John preached that Jesus was coming. John preached that he was the Messiah that they'd been waiting for. And just like John said, Jesus came on the scene. And Jesus began to preach. Jesus performed miracles. Remember, he changed water into wine at this wedding of Cana. We see that he healed the sick. We see that he took this small boy's small lunch and he blessed it and he fed over 5,000 people with this little lunch. To put that in modern day terms, it'd be kind of like he took a can of tuna and some crackers and fed 5,000 people with it. We saw that he raised the dead. His friend Lazarus that he loved had died and he raised him from the dead. In the scripture that we read today, we see that this evil spirit spoke up and said, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to kill us? And again, I think it's interesting to note that he knew who Jesus was. But in spite of all of these things that we've talked about, the people of that day still rejected his authority, basically saying, you're not the boss of me. I agree you have some authority, and I've seen you do this, 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 and this, but you're still not the boss of me. But, the challenge of responding to Jesus' authority didn't end in the first century. And I'm not talking about just total unbelievers and rank sinners. Today, there are people sitting in churches across this country. Most of them would claim to love God. But many of them completely reject the authority of God over their life. They might give him a little bit of say-so in certain parts of their life, but when it comes to giving him total authority, no, that's not going to happen. And there was a song written several years ago that said, if you're not Lord of everything, then you're not Lord at all. And I have to tell you this morning that that is very true. He is asking us to give all to him. When he called the fishermen, 
It says they left everything. They left their families, their business, everything, and they followed Jesus. We know that Peter was married because at some point Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And he left her. Now, I don't know his wife. Maybe that was a blessing. But he eventually had to come back. But they left everything. And I will tell you this morning that there is nothing less than that expected of us today. You mean i got to give up my house? Not unless God tells you to. Remember there was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus and he said, you know, I've kept all your commandments. What, what do I need to do to be one of your followers? And he said, go take everything that you own and sell it and give it to the poor. And it says the man walked away sorrowfully. Why? Because he was more attached to those things than he was to Jesus. And there's churches full of people today that are more attached to the car they drove up in than they are to the Jesus that they came in to worship. Because it's easier just to give Him lip service and come to church and go through the motions. Since our normal human nature usually goes against the nature of God, it's easier to just keep doing what we want to do as opposed to what God wants us to do and to submit to His authority. Now, if you're saying, are you saying you do that? Working on it. I'm trying. But we find often that it's easier to serve ourselves than it is to serve Him. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want anybody to leave this place this morning or anybody that's listening to this on the Internet to say, well, He thinks we should all just sell everything and move into the church together. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. I hope you drove up in in a Bentley and I hope you've got three more of them at home and I hope you've got this gazillion dollar house that you just left this morning I hope God has blessed you to the point to where you have need of nothing of this world as long as you have submitted to him completely a Sunday school teacher that I had several years ago Sister Jean Gray used to say that anything that you let become you, between you and God is closer to God than you are. Boy, I wish he wouldn't have said that. Kind of just paints this picture in our mind of what we don't want to see. Often we try to justify our wrongdoings or we we rationalize that god is a forgiving god and if if something we do something that we're not supposed to we'll just ask for forgiveness later instead of that we should be seeking his help in submitting to his authority when we pray do we pray god give me this or do we pray god help me to Come under your authority completely so that I can follow and be in your will. So we have this dilemma. When we're faced with this issue of obedience, and it's very simple. Is Jesus the boss of me? When God speaks to us to do something, when God speaks us to go up and talk to that person and witness to them, 
When He asks us, why don't you take some time and go out and knock on some doors and invite people out to church and see if they could come and and feel what you feel and share what you have had so much of. When God tells us to go speak to that homeless person that doesn't smell very good, do we submit to His authority or do we look at Him and say, You're not the boss of me. And I will tell you this in closing. When God speaks to you, whichever way you answer, whichever way we answer, our receptivity and the obedience to His Word shows What truth is in our heart? If God leads us and we follow, if God directs us and we go, if God calls us and we leave everything and go, it shows what's in our heart. If He calls us to follow Him, and we say, no, I've got just one more fishing trip. That also shows what's in our heart. And I'll close again by asking this question. Is Jesus the boss of you? God bless you.